series on Joshua, and uh, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 7 this morning. So if you don't have your Bible, that whole chapter is there in the bulletin. And by the way, if you're visiting, well, two things. Usually we have the Lord's Prayer in the bulletin, in case you don't know that from memory. We like that to be before you so that if you want to participate, you can. And we just had so much text this morning, we couldn't fit it in there. So sorry about that. Uh, Don't, you know, if that's a deal breaker, sorry that you're never coming back now. Um, But hopefully not. And um, also, I wanted to mention this too. Um, Again, thanks to Teddy Hess for for sharing with us about RUF from Stanford. And and I I was listening to it kind of from a visitor's standpoint. If you're visiting and you're going, what is RUF? What is that acronym? It's uh, rough. Just kidding. Uh, it's, It's Reformed University Fellowship. That's our denomination's campus ministry. And really, Jake alluded to this, it really started out as more of an SEC thing and just even in my, uh, since I've been a college student, has become a national ministry as evidenced by the fact that we're at Stanford and up in New England and getting in the Northwest and places like that. But it's also going into um, other countries, universities in other countries. So anyway, that's what that is. I wanted you to know that. But we're going to be in Joshua chapter 7 this morning. Um, a few days ago, we picked up my son John from camp and uh, we drove through an area up on the Alabama-Georgia line called Sand Mountain. Years ago, I saw a photo exhibit called uh, Salvation on Sand Mountain. It's a photo exhibit, black and white photos, of that area, and especially of churches in that area. There are rural churches in the Sand Mountain area that are uh, still snake-handling churches, if you've heard of that. And the photo that I remember from that exhibit is a close-up of a little girl just looking square at her. And I guess she's about six or seven years old. She's old enough where she can put her arms up on the pew in front of her. So the photo is of the girl like this, and there are two adults flanking her, and you can't see their, their heads. But one of them is handing two or three timber rattlers across her to the other person. So there's just a little girl with a wad of rattlesnakes over her. And just the expression on her face is just like, get me out of here, I'm so bored. (laughs) And, you know, I I think about that thing. It's amazing what we can grow accustomed to. You know, it's amazing what can just become become normal. Uh, Poisonous snakes being passed over your head as a child. Um, People get accustomed to super hot places to live. People get accustomed to super cold places to live. People get accustomed to combat. It's amazing what you can just adjust to if you're around it long enough, right? You can, um, I've known people that lived in paper mill towns, and after a while they just got used to the smell. Grow accustomed to it. Um, before we read this text, uh, here's, here's the thing I, I, I want us to just think about and then hear the passage. We are accustomed... This is all of us, all right? We are accustomed to living on the earth that God made and being creatures that He made and being creatures that He made for His glory and for His purposes and eating the food that He lets the earth produce and drinking the water that He put on the earth and breathing the air that He gives us and counting on this immune system that he put in our bodies to, to work and help keep us healthy. And just to kind of just all these things to live on his world using his resources. And to disobey him constantly 
and not feel the immediate ramifications for that. Because that's how our life works. You can disobey God and virtually never immediately experience the ramifications for it. And we're accustomed to it being that way to the point where, really, if we were honest, and I don't care how good teaching you've received. I hope hope you've had great biblical teaching. You may have had no biblical teaching. But whatever you've received, I, I just think it would be unanimous that even if we know sin is serious, it feels like it's just normal. And this text is going to throw some hard things at us. Last week did too, but this is going to throw some hard things at us. But it's a window into something that it's clarifying for us to think about. It's actually healthy for us to meditate on together. And that is, what does God think about our sin? And we're not talking about that sin out there, outside the room being done by somebody else. I want to keep it first person plural. What is God's view? What is God's God's feeling about our sin? As a window into that, um, I want to turn our attention to Joshua chapter 7. Now, this comes after the conquest of Jericho, as the people are now trying to then conquer a Canaanite city called Ai. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites... And all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up. Consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord, God of Israel, There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. 
You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning, He brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zarahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zarahites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man, and Achan the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel, and they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys, and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, as we say so many Sundays, we need your help. We need your help every moment from getting out of the car to the call to worship to any part of the service to every moment of Monday through Saturday. We need your help every minute, but we feel the need for your help to understand the Bible and to understand your Word. So please help us. Show us what you are like. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we looked at the overthrow of uh, the city of Jericho last week, and I said last week that this week I wanted to look at this theme that's coming up a lot in Joshua. And it's this whole issue of God commanding Israel as it goes into the promised land that with certain nations that they were to wipe them out completely. And, uh, and by the way, it's uncanny that if, if I were preaching on John 3.16 in the fall, there'd be plenty of open seats. If I preach on Canaanite genocide in the middle of vacation, like the sanctuary is completely full, which is bizarre to me. The weird algorithms of uh, church attendance, I don't know. But uh, what I want to look at 
are two points taking on Joshua 7, but kind of bringing the camera out as well. Sin, sin, and our community, sin and our God. And it's under that second point that I want to consider this matter of um, the command to destroy entire cities, entire nations. So first off, sin in our community, and then I want to spend a little bit more time on the second one, sin in our God. And first off, sin in our community. Look at the, the first verse of this narrative. It says this, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. And, and the last part of that verse says, The anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. And then you get the same thing down in verse 11. It says, there, therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. Excuse me, I'm reading from verse 12. Verse 11, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. Now, we just heard the whole episode, right? In the episode, there's one man, maybe his family was complicit, but essentially there's one man who sinned. But God holds Israel responsible. He says, they have mishandled the devoted things. They have transgressed the covenant. All of them. Now, that is really jarring to us. Uh, we're pretty unique in world history for how individualistic we are. I mean, we, I've, I've talked about that in multiple sermons, that Americans are known as being highly individualistic. We tend to think, hey, 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 Guilt should be if I have done something that incurred guilt. But don't find me, the individual, guilty if I'm associated with a group of people and somebody in that group did something wrong. Now, I'll give you an example of where I, I saw that mindset even in, in the context of the church thinking about itself. Um, if you've been around for a few weeks, we mentioned that week before last, our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America had its general assembly here in Greenville. And uh, that's our big once-a-year once a annual meeting. Well, back in 2002, uh, general assembly was in Birmingham. And I was there for a few days of it. And one of the big things that happened at that meeting was someone brought an overture to general... I can't believe I'm using that phrase in a sermon. An overture to general assembly. I can just feel people nodding off right now. But someone brought an overture to general assembly. And the reason that this one stood out, it was an overture about confessing and repenting sins of racism in our own Presbyterian heritage. And, and some of that came out of the fact that our denomination really grew out of not just generic Presbyterianism, but Southern Presbyterianism. And there were uh, notable Presbyterian ministers, writers, theologians who not only from the pulpit but in print defended racist institutions and took non-biblical views especially about African-American, um, African-Americans. And so the overture was brought for us as a denomination to own that, name it, confess it, repent of it. Now, you might think, okay, well, I guess that was probably a slam dunk. Like, yeah, absolutely, we're going to do that. But it was not a slam dunk, and it generated a ton of discussion. And one of the reasons that it generated discussion, and you heard people saying this, was, okay, this overture is sort of asking me to confess and repent of slavery. I would never own a slave, 
and none of my ancestors owned a slave, but, but it's asking me to speak in the first person. Now, do you hear what's going on there? I, the individual, did not do it, so don't ask me to confess it. Why is it fair for God to say Israel has transgressed when basically an individual transgressed? Look, verse 11. And, and again, I mean, um, yeah, verse 11. I'm going to get my numbers right here in a second. Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. And it says it again in verse 15 toward the end. Speaking about Achan, it says, He has transgressed the covenant of the Lord. Now, why is that important? Because God is saying this is not just a matter of there was a rule and this one individual broke the rule, so he is guilty of breaking the rule. The dynamic between God and His people is covenant. This comes up in here all the time incredibly binding, incredibly relational, life and death, blood bond. The laws and the statutes are the terms of the covenant, but the thing itself is the covenant. And the refrain of the covenant is always in the plural. God says, I will be your, second person plural, I'll be your God. And you, second person plural, will be my people. Package deal. Meaning... When one person who's in the community breaks the terms of the covenant, there's an effect on the entire covenant community. And the community needs to own it together. Back to that general assembly in Birmingham. I I got to sit in on a committee meeting where that overture was discussed in great detail. And an older pastor there... In, in, in the, the, the discussion was getting very heated. An older pastor made a point, and I just, this has stuck with me. He opened the Bible to Daniel chapter 9. He said, I want to read what Daniel says in Daniel chapter 9, and it's a prayer. Now, this is Daniel. Daniel was a prophet in the Old Testament. Daniel spoke against sin and pleaded for righteousness, and he was an obedient man. But when you read Daniel 9, the way the prayer starts is, Lord, we have sinned against you. And then he says this, We have ignored your servants, the prophets. He is a prophet. But it's almost as if when he prayed this prayer, he kind of took off, and this may be a dumb way to put it, but he kind of took off his work hat, his prophet hat, and just put on his fellow Israelite hat, and he said, We. We've sinned. We've ignored your servants, the prophets, even though he is one. Now, again, I really want to spend more time on the point I'm about to go to. But before we leave this one, it just seems that we would be remiss if we didn't ask ourselves this question. What is my secret doing to our community? Right now. What is my secret doing to our community? You know, it it could be that if you are sexually involved with someone to whom you are not married, whether that is as a single person who's never been married, 
or whether you're someone who's married and you're misusing it with someone who's not your spouse. You may feel down in your, in, just in your bones that this is, this is not good and, and it, I, I need to stop and I know this is not God's best for me. You may, you, may, you, may, you may feel a pretty strong sense of that, but it's not really affecting anyone outside of me and that person. So it's your secret. Your secret could be racism, speaking of. I mean, it could be that you dislike other races so much more than you would ever let on. And someone would have to know you super, super, super well to pick up on it because it is so secret. It could be the hatefulness in the walls of your own home. Uh, it, it could be your hatefulness toward your parents. It could be your hatefulness toward a child or toward a spouse. And because you're not going to tell anybody and because they're not going to tell anybody and it stays in those walls, that the feeling is, okay, I know this needs to get better. It's not in a healthy place, but it's not affecting anyone outside of these walls. And the Scriptures would say otherwise. And I'll give you an example of this. In some ways, this is a New Testament parallel of our text. It's early on in the book of Acts, and it describes this married couple, Ananias and Sapphira. And they sell some personal property, and they bring their money to the church. They, just, they, they give the proceeds to the church. And the text is clear to say they were free to keep or give as much as they wanted. There was no gun to their head about this. The problem was that when they brought their money to the church, they lied and told the church that was the full price they got for the money when they had withheld some and gave the rest to the church. So really, they gave money to the church. Really, the problem was they lied about whether they kept some or not for themselves. God immediately struck them dead. And Luke is careful in the book of Acts to record that didn't just affect their family and friends, but it sent ripple effects through the entire church. It sent ripple effects through the entire covenant community. And I want to circle back to this at the end, but we would be remiss if we are not asking ourselves the question, what is my secret doing right now to our community? The sin in our God. Um, look, Look back at verse 1. The people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. That expression, did you notice that was just all through this chapter? In fact, that that expression, that term shows up uh, several places in the Old Testament, but no book has it more than the book of Joshua. Sometimes it's in noun form or it's in verbal form. If it says devoted to destruction, that's just the verbal form, same basic root, same basic word. What is that talking about? Now, I'm just going to tell you, for about the next five minutes, I'm going to get very teachy, okay? I teach all the time, but I'm about to throw it into gear here. The book of Deuteronomy, which was what they heard before they crossed the Jordan River, here's what the Lord says. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, this is Deuteronomy chapter 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, and he lists these names that we've been hearing, the Hivites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and all that, Canaanites. 
Seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. That's the verbal form. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. Then at the end of Deuteronomy 7, he says this, very important. You shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. Did you catch what, what was said there? If you go into one of these areas, and this place is earmarked for total destruction, all the beings and all the things are devoted. Don't take even one of the things into your home, or that status of being devotion-worthy will come on you. That is echoed in our passage. Look in verse 12 of our passage. God is responding to Joshua. He says, Therefore the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, meaning they're running away. Why? Because they have become devoted for destruction. They've become devoted for destruction. When Achan takes just this stuff, and it's, it's not that big a pile of stuff, the status that had been on the city of Jericho and is on the city of Ai is now on the people of Israel. Now this is where I think we've got to zoom the camera out and say, all right, why is God devoting people to destruction? Why is God devoting entire cities or nations or people groups to destruction? I'm going to throw out four points here. All right, this is not exhaustive and I don't want to exhaust you, but I, I want us to have some bullet points to think about this. First off, devotion to destruction was not a blanket policy for Israelite war. This was not the blanket policy for what Israel was supposed to do with any of its enemies. Let me quote from Deuteronomy again. Deuteronomy 20 is the chapter that speaks the most about Israelites and warfare, how to do it. And here's what God says. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, Offer terms of peace to it. That was the command under normal circumstances. And he goes on to say this. Don't kill women. Don't kill children. You don't kill non-combatants. Don't kill the animals. He even says, don't cut the trees down. The trees are not combatants. In other words, Israel, Israelite war was not to be total war under normal circumstances. That's the first thing. Second thing is this. I'm going to cheat and look at my notes here. Devotion to destruction was not for ethnic reasons. And the reason I want to point that out is because when we hear devotion to destruction, we tend to think of the term genocide. When we hear the term genocide, we tend to think of ethnic cleansing. But what did God say? If you go to an area that I have devoted to destruction and you're supposed to destroy it and you take some of their stuff and you bring it into your community, that status will fall on you. We just read that God said that. On descendants of Abraham, on full-blooded Jewish men, women, and children, now that status was on them. It's not ethnic or ethnically driven. What does drive it? The best snapshot into what... And you can, you can refer to these people groups just with the blanket term Canaanites. 
the best snapshot of Canaanite lifestyle is Leviticus chapter 18. And in this chapter, God says, Do not do the following behaviors, because these are the behaviors of the people that I'm sending you in to displace. It's because of these behaviors that the land is going to vomit them out. And God says, and if you do these behaviors, you'll be vomited out. And by the way, archaeological evidence and even extra-biblical writings affirm what you learn about Canaanites in Leviticus 18. This sermon's quickly going to go from PG to PG-13 to I don't know how far it's going to go. Because of the Canaanite lifestyle, I'm going to be just kind of air to the side of brevity and say two things. The first is sexual perversion. And by sexual perversion, I don't just mean fornication, incest, bestiality, constraints thrown off. That's the first one. The second one, then, one uh, though, is the one that just uh, puts a lump in my throat. The second one is child sacrifice. And it's child sacrifice in the service of a Canaanite deity called Molech. And Molech was a deity that typically would be worshipped. There would be a, a metallic idol with the head of a bull and the body of a man with arms outstretched in a hollow cavity where a fire would be stoked until the, the metal was white hot. And it's not known whether living infants or infants who had been killed would be offered, but those infants would be brought and put into Molech, accompanied by raging drumming music to drown out screams or crying. Uh, God says in, in one of the prophets, he refers to that practice, because here's the unbelievable thing. We're sitting here thinking... What people could ever do that? God says, you've got to get rid of these people or they will tempt you to do it. And I'm sure the Israelites thought, there's absolutely no way that we could ever do that. King Solomon built a a, a shrine to Molech in Jerusalem. Here's the human heart. And there's a place in the prophet Jeremiah where God says, it never entered my mind to command killing a child to worship me. Third thing, the patience of God with the Canaanites is jaw-dropping. Where do we get that? Genesis chapter 15. This is going way back in the Bible. God makes a covenant with Abraham, and here's what he says. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs and will be servants there. I'm talking about Egypt. And they'll be afflicted for 400 years and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Amorites is just a synonym for Canaanites. Joshua used it in our passage. Here's what God says to Abraham. Your descendants are going to be enslaved in a country that's not theirs. Then I'm going to bring them back to this land where we are. It's going to take hundreds of years because the iniquity of the Amorites is kind of like there's this container that I'm going to let fill up and it's not full yet. How long does God let it fill up? At least for the better part of 500 years. That those kinds of things were going... The United States is not even 250 years old yet. 
I mean, we look at something from colonial South Carolina and go, man, that is old. Double that. And God is watching this on His earth, people made in His image, children who bear His image. And He says, not yet. Not yet. And then finally He says to His people, who uniquely are both church and state. It's not like that anymore. It was them. He says to them, kill them all. Kill them all. And if you go into a town and you see a child, understand that that child will grow up to participate in every one of these things. They must be exterminated. And that leads to the fourth one. And again, you may feel like you can't breathe right now, but the fourth thing is this. God may demonstrate His hatred for sin. And my language is intentional. We know that He can, but I'm wanting to use the language of He has the right when He wants to, and it's unbelievably rare to show the world, here's what I think of sin, period. Now, we can look at a passage like this and go, yeah, absolutely, killing children, sexual perversion, and we can feel very removed from it. But there are times where God shows what He thinks of sin other places in the Bible, and it seems like just kind of vanilla, garden variety sins. For example, there's a place in the book of Numbers. I know I'm all over the place, but just hang with me. There's a place in the book of Numbers where a group of people come to Moses, and they're complaining. They're complaining Saying, like, why do you get to run everything? Everybody in Israel is holy. Why do you get to do all the special stuff? And it makes Moses angry, and he's frustrated, and he's exasperated, and he, and he goes to God to talk to him about it, and God says, tell Israel to move away from those men's tents. And Israel withdraws from the tents of Korah and his colleagues, and the earth opens and swallows them, and the earth closes. Because they complained... Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead because really they told a white lie so they'd be well perceived in the church. King Herod in the book of Acts drops dead and is eaten by worms because people told him he gave a great speech and he didn't give glory to God. If you look at human history, God almost never does this. But what's going on inside of us? What, typically what's going on inside of us is when we see Him ever do this, our response is, well, they should have been given a chance for mercy. They should have been given a chance. And I know it is painful to say it, but we've got to say it. When we frame it in terms of should, we're showing our cards. Because what we're showing is that we think deep down that mercy is obligatory that every man and woman and child is entitled to a shot at mercy. If it's an entitlement, it is not mercy. It's a wage. The only wage from God that Scripture promises is this. The wages of sin is death. Anything improving on that would have to be an unmerited gift and merciful. 
And my hope is this, that if, you know, like, like our grade school teachers used to say, if you've got your thinking cap on, I hope this is moving us toward a conclusion. At some level, we should all be devoted to destruction. That's exactly right. Our Achan wasn't Achan. Our Achan is Adam. And it says in the book of Hosea, Adam transgressed the covenant. That means that not just the Israelite community was affected, but just the human community was affected by what he did. And I know there's that, especially Americans, that's not fair, you know? I didn't ask him to represent me. But think about this. What if what we might call the Aiken dynamic could work in reverse? I mean, how, how does the text end? Look at the end of Joshua 7. All Israel stoned him with stones. And then verse 26, Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. In the next chapter is they overtake the city of Ai. That in that case, the man who brought guilt on the whole community is punished and died, and the whole community is forgiven. But what is the gospel? The gospel is what if there's the one person who never broke the covenant, never transgressed the covenant, what if he says, for my people, put the devotion to destruction on me and lift it from them and falls under the wrath of God? And here's the incredible thing that... that, Literally, in the same way that when... I know it's terrible to talk about, but when they finish stoning Achan, it's over. Over. That when Christ dies on the cross and says, it is finished, and he gives up his spirit, what happens in the temple? The curtain, the symbolic separation of God and man, immediately tears open, top to bottom. Man, do you believe that? This is a horrible passage, but here's the benefit it can be to us. Sin is hated by God because it's completely at odds with everything that is good and true and beautiful. It's at the root of everything that hurts the world. It's at odds with everything that helps the world. He hates it. And he hates it in us. So what is the remedy? Is the remedy, then I won't sin? We cannot fix our sin problem with our efforts not to sin. But what if a man represents not just me, but my whole community, and he dies to take away the punishment for our transgression. That's the gospel. And I want to end with this. Uh, The famous Christian hymn, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me, there's a beautiful line in there that says this, talking about um, the rock, Jesus. Be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. You know what that means? 
when Jesus was up on that cross, when he's the one taking away the sins and the punishment of the community, he does two things. He takes away the guilt. He takes away the punishment. But the other thing he did was he took away the power of sin. And do you know what that means for people like you and me? God can work in our lives with our secrets. Do you struggle with racism? Struggle with theft? Nobody knows it. You sit for hours, look at the computer and covet things, and maybe you never buy them, so yeah, it's my secret. I'm not running up a huge credit card bill. I just want them. Christ can be of sin, the double cure. Take away the guilt, but take away the power of that in our lives. God is very, very holy. And God is very, very merciful. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are here as a group of needy sinners, uh, disobedient people, stiff-necked, in love with things that we ought not love, beholden to things that are bad lovers for our soul. Please have mercy on us. Lord, if, if there's anyone here who has not heard that good news, please allow that person to hear it today, even today for the first time, to believe that Jesus takes away that destruction that we deserve on our behalf, breaks the power of sin in our lives. Father, for our secrets that are affecting our whole community, for secrets that are affecting our church, please change us. Please bring new paths of obedience and renewal. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.